This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. This is the second part of this little mini-series about William's relationships with those around him in the mid to late 1070s. Please be sure to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app and leave a rating and review. I used to, you know, discount that sort of thing until I started this podcast. It makes a huge difference, actually. Also, if you're so inclined, please head over to Patreon and become a member to access whole series worth of bonus content that is simply not on the public podcast, including the complete series of Poland's tumultuous 11th century. All right, today's episode, episode 95, it's a good one, is entitled Everybody Hates Will, A Continental Conspiracy. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. May 31st, 1076, William beheads the only Englishman to have died after surrender throughout the entire Norman Conquest. Well, at least those under his direct surrender. This doesn't count in those those first couple of years when William Fitzosborne and Odo of Bayou were in control in William's absence, of course. See, Waltheof wasn't exactly well-liked in Northumbria, but I mean, he was still an Englishman in a time when the English nobility were were almost exclusively not English. Besides that, in the wake of Hereward the Wake's failed rebellion and the departure of the Danish with the kingdom's population settling into a mood of just getting on with things, he was an Englishman who sniffed out a rebellion and outed the leaders before it truly kicked off, foiling a possibly devastating rebellion for his king. The people apparently made their thoughts pretty clear to William, but not enough to cause too much of a ruckus. Waltheov's head was still separated from his shoulders either way. However, by removing Waltheov's head from his shoulders, William felt, though, discomfort among his subjects that he was... He wasn't keen on leaving the island quite so soon that summer. But the problem came when word arrived from the mainland that, once again, people were rising up against Normandy. Now, the continental context for this came on Patreon episode 13, titled Forsaken Son. But suffice it to say that, as William was handling the fallout of the failed revolt of the Earls, things in and around the duchy were getting a bit dicey as of late. The revolt of the Earls had some serious potential to spoil everything he'd worked toward for almost a decade. But what I, what if I suggested that Ralph and Roger's plot against William was merely the tip of a much larger iceberg? Now, from what I've read, it's universally agreed that it was a dangerous, though ultimately small blip on the radar what with all the other more successful revolts against William having come and gone already. This one barely got off its own feet. See, that's just it, though. What if that is just a short-sighted view of the whole thing? What if the years 1074 through, say, 1077 were actually much more important and intertwined? So on what grounds can I make this claim? Well, first of all, it's not my claim, though to be upfront, I do, I think, I do 
subscribe to it. I think it's entirely possible. And more than that, I think it's pretty likely to have been the case. William was the victim of a much larger conspiracy to topple his entire reign in England and in Normandy. We know that William's enemies were ruthless, and they were numerous. By now, we can all agree on this premise. William was hated by a great many people, but they all came at their hatred for the Norman Duke-slash-English king from a different angle. Let's take a look at some of those enemies, shall we? Let's start with this guy, Robert the Frisian, Queen Matilda's little brother, William's brother-in-law. Remember, Robert had just pushed his way past his nephew and, rather forcefully, took the title of Count of Flanders in recent years. Why would Count Robert be at odds with his brother-in-law, especially given the decent relationship William had had with the former count? Well, don't forget that Matilda had taken her nephew's side rather than Robert the Frisian's when it came to succession to the county. What's more is that Matilda convinced her husband to send Norman knights to fight against Robert, from which only a few came, <laughs> at best, limping back to the duchy, sans their high-ranking Norman leader, William Fitzosborne. Of course, Robert won this little civil war within Flanders, but it did nothing to smooth over the transition from one power broker to another. William's best friend was dead, and Robert wasn't at all regretful of it. Next, we have Earl Roger of Herefordshire. It's the second Earl of Herefordshire, it should, I should add. Roger de Bretouille, which... Bretuil, Bretuil, I don't really know. These French names are killing me. Uh, as he's known in the history books, that is, was the son of William Fitzosborne, the first Earl of Herefordshire. And again, uh, William the Conqueror's bestie. Upon Fitzosborne's death fighting against Robert the Frisian, Roger assumed the title of Earl in Western England. Though we've discussed the quote-unquote surface reasons as to why Earl Roger rose against King William in the Revolt of the Earls, we can't overlook the possibility that he might have held a bit of a grudge against William for sending his father to Flanders. It's weak, admittedly, but it's a possibility to take along for the ride when discussing a possibly larger conspiracy. And have we forgotten the whole wedding incident itself? Next, we have King Philip I of France. Yes, the King of France wasn't too keen on his duke in Normandy, and really it didn't matter what the king's name was. King whatever of France simply didn't like William. Remember, William was almost constantly at odds with the French monarchy simply because he was such a threat to the peace of the kingdom. Norman dukes were long feared in France, all the way back since Rollo. From his birth to his death, William would serve under three French kings. Robert II, the pious, until he was three years old. <laughs> Henry I, until he was about 33 years old. And Philip I, the amorous, until his death. That's the current one here in our timeline. Now, Philip the amorous was the young king who was groomed by Anne of Kiev and Count Baldwin V of Flanders until he reached majority. And Philip had reached his majority several years earlier, so... He was plenty old enough to know the situation with William. 
In fact, by 1075, the year of the revolt of the earls back in England, King Philip I of France was about 23 years old. He knew of the history of his father, King Henry I, had with William. And on again, off again, tug of war between the Norman Duke and the Count of Anjou. Mainly, though, for the ownership of the county of Maine. Though even that seems to be a surface-level excuse to try to keep his feudal lords in check. The problem was that no one seemed capable of matching Duke William of Normandy in pretty much any capacity. So not only would King Philip I of France be yet another French monarch, eager to keep William pinned down and subdued and even humbled, but he would also remember that his benefactors in, Fr- in Flanders, excuse me, in Flanders, the older brother of its current count, had ensured his smooth accession to the throne. And the Flemish count was, well, no friend, as we've said, of William's. And King Philip had no issues with keeping Normandy from expanding its borders. Next, in our list of William haters, we have Falk Larachine. Yeah, here's a, here's a new name for you, probably. Well, he's been playing around in the background, and we discussed him a bit on the Patreon episode number 13. But Folk Lerachine was the Count of Anjou at this time in our, in our podcast narrative. In fact, he was the Angevine Count from 1068 to 1109. Well, technically, Folk was the little brother of Geoffrey III, or Geoffrey the Bearded, And they both shared the title of Count of Anjou for all but the last three years of that huge span of 42 years or so when Geoffrey died. Long story short, Geoffrey the Bearded took over after their uncle, Geoffrey the Hammer Martel, who had essentially raised them and knighted them both in the year 1060. Both Folk IV, which is Folk Lerachine's actual name, and Geoffrey the Bearded, his older brother, were the grandsons of the great Count Folk III, also known as Folk the Black, through their mother, Ermengarde of Anjou, and that is Folk the Black's daughter. See, Folk IV Le Rochine watched his older brother Geoffrey the Bearded be about as incompetent a leader as he could be. I'm sure bumbling idiot might have slipped from his lips from time to time watching Geoffrey try to compete with the likes of Duke William of Normandy, which pushed Folk to overthrow his brother and, quote-unquote, share the title of Count of Anjou. But there's really only one, if you think about it. After a handful of years in the 1060s, while Duke William was off becoming king of a foreign kingdom, Anjou under Geoffrey the Bearded, had steadily fallen from the level of prominence that their grandfather, Folk the Black, and their uncle, the powerful and entirely competent Geoffrey the Hammer Martel, had worked so hard to put Anjou in the previous three decades, thus prompting Folk Le Rachine to make his move. Now, by 1067, with Folk Le Rachine at the helm, for all intents and purposes here, Anjou began to show its face again in the French political hierarchy. Not only was Folk Le Rochine driven by overcoming the embarrassment of his brother's leadership, but it seems he was also quite driven by the urge to one-up his predecessors. 
And before we move on, though, it's worth noting something else about Folk the Fourth, specifically what his nickname, Le Rachine, means. Now, you guys know I'm, I'm pretty big on where these names and some of these words come from, so just, just entertain me for a second. Now, remember the source here, but Orderic Vitalis described Folk the Fourth as, quote, a man with reprehensible, even scandalous, habits, end quote. Le Rachine itself means essentially the rude, but I automatically think of the word wretched when I hear Le Rachine. In short, he was a wholly unpleasant person, apparently. He, he ultimately married up to five times. Not that that makes you a bad person. Uh, it's all the other things he did. Uh, he had a handful of kids, and he kept his brother basically on house arrest for decades. He was certainly no heroic character in our story, but he was, make no mistake about it, a serious antagonist to William between 1067 and 1087, even extending the antagonism to the next two dukes of Normandy, mind you. He, he lived until 1109. Next on our list is Earl Ralph of East Anglia. With Earl Roger of Herefordshire, Earl Ralph of East Anglia was the second in the plot that led to the revolt of the earls in 1075. However, unlike Earl Roger, Earl Ralph escaped and didn't spend most of the rest of his life in an Anglo-Norman prison. As we know, what on the surface led to the revolt was the fact that William had declined the request for Earl Roger to marry his sister, Emma, to Earl Roger across the island in Herefordshire. This would, if you remember, have led to exactly what happened. The two earls, now joined through marriage, would have sought to split the island in half, thus cutting William's grip on the kingdom in half. After Ralph had escaped to his homeland in Brittany, he immediately set to work on pulling together what we're entertaining here on this podcast as a much larger conspiracy against William. Now, before we jump into it, let's introduce just one more person, one that hits so much closer to home for William that it boggles the mind to think that William's possible collapse as the preeminent leader in all of Europe in the 11th century, and that's saying something, there was some biggies, it could have come from his own household. In fact, no. Let's up the ante here. What if I told you it was two people from his own household that could have toppled him? Any guesses? Of course, Robert Curthose and Queen Matilda. That's right. Both William's eldest son and his perfect match in marriage. Mark Morris, in his book, The Norman Conquest, writes the following, quote, Since their marriage in or around 1050, William and Matilda had produced at least nine children, four sons and probably five girls. The second son, Richard, had died in a hunting accident during his teens, leaving three surviving brothers. Henry, the youngest child of all, had been born either in 1068 or 1069, while William, known as Rufus on account of his red hair, had been born around 1060 and was therefore just emerging from adolescence. But the firstborn son, Robert, was probably the oldest of all the nine children, and was already long past this stage. 
By 1077, he was very much a young adult male. And that was precisely the problem. End quote. Morris continues, describing Robert in ways we touched on in that Patreon episode number 13. See, he quotes Orderic Vitalis saying, round-faced, short and stout. He, that is Robert Kurthose, was commonly nicknamed Fat Legs and Shorty Pants. This last nickname was the one that stuck, Morris takes over here in the, in the quotation, this last nickname was the one that stuck and rendered into Norman French as Kurt Hose. This one is echoed down from the ages, end quote, of Morris's. Now, from Orderic Vitalis to William of Malmesbury, explains Morris, just about every writer to broach the subject of the father-son relationship between them agree that, quote, there was no love lost between William and Robert, end quote. And again, from Patreon episode 13, we learned that after young William Rufus and Henry upturned a bedpan full of human excrement and urine on Robert's head in front of all of Robert's buddies, young men com comprising the next gen of Norman aristocracy, mind you, well, the forsaken son of William had simply had enough. And what's more, Robert was Queen Matilda's so-called favorite child. The records whisper of William's treatment of Robert as a serious point of contention between this happy couple. That, and Matilda was also reportedly becoming restless with William's near-constant absence from Normandy throughout the last 10 years. Not a good recipe for a successful marriage, that's for sure. But let's put a pin in, in the bedpan incident and the fallout of that incident for just a few minutes, because that didn't happen until September of 1077, and we need to build a few more things up before that happens. So Robert the Frisian, Count of Flanders. Roger Le Breteul, second Earl of Herefordshire. Philip I, King of France. Folk Le Rochine, Count of Anjou. Ralph de Gale, Earl of East Anglia. Robert Curthose, heir to the Duchy of Normandy. Matilda of Flanders, Queen of England and Duchess of Normandy. That is quite a lineup, actually. Now let's focus on the former Earl of East Anglia, Ralph de Gale. Having fled England, Ralph de Gale, Morris writes, quote, was no wandering exile. Back in his native Brittany, the Earl had ensconced himself in the castle of Dull, from where he and his men were able to menace Normandy's western marches, end quote. It would be here, in Dull, that Ralph would begin to pull the threads together in the hopes of once and for all toppling William. He had a power base there, especially since he was in the good graces of the Breton Duke, Alan IV, or Alan the Younger, who had taken over after taking the reins from Duchess Hawise, his mother, upon her death in 1072. Now, officially, Alan IV wasn't the ruler of Brittany quite yet. He would serve his minority until 1084. His father, Hole, of the House of Cornu... I'm not even going to try. Sorry, not even going to try. But both of these rulers of Brittany, Duke Alan IV and his father, Hole, would welcome Ralph de Gale and support his efforts to undermine their powerful ducal neighbor. Now, William wasn't exactly done with Ralph de Gale just because the Earl left England. 
after months of Ralph harassing Western Normandy. In September of 1076, William acted. I mean, you know he was going to. He rode out and invaded Brittany, thus reopening hostilities between these neighbors, which might have been the plan all along. See, it's William who is bringing the fight to the Bretons. Morris writes, William, quote, advanced into Brittany, terrorizing Ralph's lordship and subjecting Dull to a sustained siege. But the defenders proved more resolute than anticipated and held out for many weeks, end quote. As the weather turned and the temperature steadily dropped day by day, William knew winter was fast approaching. Something needed to break, otherwise he'd be forced to desert his efforts without much of a result. And that's not really something William was ever okay with. At exactly the wrong moment for William, King Philip I showed up. Like, like seemingly out of nowhere. Morris writes, quote, Surprising William and forcing him into what sounds at best like a hasty retreat, if not quite a total rout, end quote. And I love how the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles records it. They said, quote, King William went away and lost both men and horses and incalculable treasure, end quote. It's like though William lost all of that stuff as he hightailed it back to Normandy, the Chronicles could only admit that William basically went away. <laughs> it's like no one at the time could admit what Morris would say a thousand years later when he says, quote, it was the first recorded setback of the conqueror's military career, end quote. Or Derek chalks it up to God's justice for beheading Waltheof, but I still like how they just couldn't admit, even five decades later when, you know, or Derek Vitalis was writing, that they couldn't admit that William was simply outplayed in that moment by a Breton and a French king, mind you. See, see how it's kind of all starting to make a little sense, how it's a much larger plot just with the way things played out? In 1077, it seems that William couldn't confidently re-enter military action against Ralph of Brittany, or that is Ralph de Gale, excuse me, without pulling into the mix soldiers under both Anjou and his king. And the fact that William didn't do so leads us to believe that William was well aware of something we can only chalk up to conjecture today. See, William was no longer the force he once was. Is this even possible? No, really, like, no one, and I mean no one, not an English king, not a French king, or three of them, I should say, not a living legend Norse king, not a single pope, and there have been a few, not his own barons and earls, not a Danish king, not an English wannabe king, not an Angevine count, not the English Channel, not a Scottish king, not the powerful family of a former English king, neither Welsh nor Irish mercenaries, not a single English nobleman, not a Flemish count. Have I made my point yet? No one, nothing could defeat William between 1027 and 1077. Think about that. 
William was the better part of 50 years old before, well, before he looked human, to be quite honest. As 1077 went on, William couldn't help but seek peace between Normandy and its neighbors. Morris writes, quote, Ralph may have been a part of a wider plot to topple William from power, orchestrated by the Count of Anjou, the Count of Flanders, and the King of France, end quote. Morris's statement here is no small statement, which is what this whole episode is kind of, uh, it kind of stems from. So it's 1077 now, right? And William was backed into a corner, one that he couldn't claw his way out of. But good news, in September of 1077, he would gather his family in Cane in Normandy to witness and celebrate the consecration of his little pet project that he'd funded when he first set off for England before Hastings 11 years before. Saint-Étienne, or St. Stephen's, was finally ready and he wouldn't miss the dedication. And this is when that incident between his boys blew up into something nearly unimaginable. What's more was that it was an entirely avoidable incident that caused William a massive amount of embarrassment. It wasn't just that his kids were fighting. No, it went deeper, precisely because of who Robert Curthose was. Robert Curthose was William's heir again. Now, just before he left for England in 1066, William publicly named his eldest son the heir to Normandy, very much reminiscent of when William's father, uh, Robert the Magnificent, left for the Holy Land and had all of his, his nobility uh, publicly state their loyalty to young William. Very reminiscent of that. And if you remember... Matilda ran the duchy, more or less, for the next decade due to Robert either being too young or, well, because Robert was also given the county of Maine to run, which he certainly did run. He ran it right into the arms of the Angevins and the people of Maine. The, the Mainish? The Mainese? It's in France, so there has to be some affect to it. Would it be mayonnaise? For their sake, I hope not. I forget it. They're French. I'm going with mayonnaise. Doesn't matter. All right. Either way, there was a lot more on the line when young William Rufus and Henry dumped that chamber pot onto Robert's head. See, Robert had very recently requested that since William had England, then, well, he should be allowed to have Normandy and Maine. And not like it was before where mom ran things while dad was away. No, 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 no. Robert went to his father and he requested that he was given the titles of Duke of Normandy and Count of Maine. I mean, William was king. Why couldn't he just give up his duchy in the county he'd taken back? Morris writes the following, quote, Robert asked to be given Normandy and Maine, but William refused, telling him to wait for a more opportune moment. Robert, says Orderic, and this is Orderic's quote to end here, Orderic says, Robert took offense because he could get nothing out of his father and arrogantly came to blows with him on a number of occasions. End quote from Orderic and Mark Morris. William and Robert, it seems, had become quite physical with one another by September of 1077, 
and that set up the brawl between brothers. There's your context. Or Derek Vitalis' words of the incident were this, quote, Robert had taken up residence in the house of Roger of Cachua, I think I got that one, and began to play dice in the upper gallery, as soldiers do. They made a great noise about it and soon began to pour down water on Robert and his sycophants underneath, end quote. Remember, uh, water <laughs> was a euphemism for other things then. For instance, in the mornings you made water when you woke up, that sort of thing. Another thing to note so far in the passage, since we're paused here, is Orderic's word, Orderic's word choice when describing Robert's friends. He called them sycophants. This was 50 or so years later when Orderic was writing uh, this whole passage. So for the better part of five decades, that's how a that's how that particular, Robert Kurthose's particular generation of Norman noblemen were seen. Just something interesting to point out there. Or Derek continues, quote, Then Evo and Aubrey of Grandmanil said to Robert, quote, Why do you put up with such insults? Just look at the way your brothers have climbed above your head and are defiling you and us with filth to your shame. Don't you see what this means? Even a blind man could. Unless you punish this insult without delay, it will be all over with you. You will never be able to hold your head up again. End quote from his friends. Hearing these words, Robert leaped to his feet in a towering rage and dashed to the upper room to take his brother brother's unawares. End quote from Orderic. Now, Morris casts suspicion on this story, but he also admits that there were some details that seemed too... Uh, too grounded to render the whole narrative a fabrication. Either way, Orderic maintains that William comes running and pulls the boys apart, which I can't help but laugh about. This was a royal-slash-ducal family, and yet they behave like <laughs> any family is likely to behave. Okay, maybe not any family, but you, you understand. I've heard two different versions of the story after William intervened that night. The first one has Robert bursting out of the room and riding toward Rouen with his buddies that night, which I prefer for narrative purposes. The other one seems more likely, though, because things in real life rarely work out with narrative flair, which has Robert being pulled apart, the boys leaving, Robert's buddies egging him on for the next 24 hours, and then them all riding to Rouen the next night. Regardless whether it was that night or the next night, within 24 hours of William Rufus and Henry, again, both future kings of England, mind you, dumped a bedpan over Robert's head, Robert Curthose had declared war on his father, William, and turned the equilibrium within the duchy on its head. It wasn't just nobility versus the duke anymore. This was a generational affair, one that included the sons of William's most loyal, the men who'd followed William across Normandy for decades, into Brittany, into Maine, and across the Channel to England. Well, the sons, it seems, had had enough and felt it was their turn to run things. Here's the problem with sons being impatient. Impulsivity rarely produces good results. And it holds true with Robert Curthose in September of 1077. 
See, Robert and his cronies rode to Rouen and tried to lay siege to the castle. Or Derek says that William flew into an unbelievable rage and rode directly to Rouen, but he was already a couple days behind his son. In addition, William sent word ahead of him to all that all of these fellows who rode with Robert, including Robert himself, were all now to be arrested and brought to William's presence immediately. Well, having absolutely no plan whatsoever, typical plan of boys and the other immature, Robert's siege of Rouen went dreadfully, and when word arrived that he was to be captured, he and his men fled Normandy altogether. Essentially, they chose exile over facing an angry King William. Can't really blame him. Morris writes, quote, Among the men who followed the heir apparent into exile, or Derek's sycophants, were the eldest son of Roger of Montgomery, Robert of Balem, and the eldest son of William Fitzosborne, William of Bretuil, the latter doubtless dismayed by the recent imprisonment of his brother Roger, that is, Earl Roger of Herefordshire. With them went many other members of the younger generation. William and Robert, in short, had split the entire Norman aristocracy along similar father-son lines, leaving family loyalties strained and divided. End quote. After all that, William had overcome up to the closing months of 1077. Who would have ever thought that he would be bested by the very person he'd spent a lifetime being disappointed in and bullying to no end? As the year came to a close, Normandy was in a pickle that they never saw coming. Robert and the sons of great Norman men first rode to Remillard, just across the eastern border of the duchy, but, well, William didn't always believe in borders, <laughs> I think we know, so they quickly realized that an invisible line wasn't really stopping a raging William, who actually had just pulled together a hefty contingent of knights to ride against his son. And here's where the conspiracy starts to come together. Robert Curdhose, he first fled to Flanders to uncle Count Robert the Frisian. And after he'd licked his wounds there, calmed down a bit, caught his breath, and received the powerful Count's support, Robert next traveled to Paris, where he met with a perennial enemy of the Norman dukes, the King of France, Philip I. So in closing, we see all the pieces moving into place. The continent had the edge, the ace in the hole, once and for all against William. But at least England was settled after the revolt of the earls two years earlier. England was settled, right? Right? Hey, hey, right? Right? <laughs>